Hi, everyone. It's Ying here. I know it's been a while since you've heard my voice. We're doing great here at TechBuzz. Ray has been working hard on a private community for investors and operators, and it's humming along beautifully in beta. For more info on that or to get involved, you can email her at rui at techbuzzchina.com. Speaking of which, she is off celebrating her birthday this week. Happy birthday to arguably the world's top bilingual China tech expert and also the best podcast co-host I could have asked for over the past three years. For this episode, we had a lot of fun recording with our friends over at the Acquired podcast. Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal, whose voices you'll hear, are one of our original inspirations for starting TechBuzz. We've been longtime listeners of Acquired, and we encourage all of our own listeners to hop on over to their feed, which can be found on all podcast platforms. And you can also take a look at the Acquired LP community, which is at glow.fm slash acquired. Let's roll the usual intro, and we hope you enjoy this episode. The president's key economic team goes to China. Uh, after whole night banking, I say I still want to do it. All right, Ray and Ying, great to be doing an episode with you. This is super fun. We've been wanting to do it for a long time. We rely on TechBuzz China for acquired research, for sure, when we're doing our uh, our China episodes. And uh, it's great to be doing something with you both. Yeah, yeah, so totally. We're big fans of acquired. Actually, you guys are, I think, the closest in format, except probably <laughs> more engaging. <laughs> so oh. thanks so much for having us. Yeah, no, seriously, y'all. Well, we're, Our goal is to fans. be like the acquired, but for, you know, China tech. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that's true, uh, though. That you is guys true. are great. This is going to be so fun. Well, why don't we turn it over to you real quick for give us your personal backstories, a little bit about the show. Uh, both of you live in California, right? Not actually in China. Yeah. Yeah. We live both in the Bay Area right now. So, yeah, I can go first. So... I uh, was born in China, immigrated to the States as a kid when I was eight, and grew up primarily in Silicon Valley, actually. So I'm a local kid, uh, you know, went to school at Berkeley. And then when I graduated, uh, went into investment banking, doing technology, uh, because I wasn't good enough to be an engineer. <laughs> so I studied engineering college, but just couldn't hack it as an engineer, and then I went into finance. And in 2007, for personal reasons, uh, moved to China um, to do, I basically did an internal transfer and then ended up staying there for the next eight years, working in a variety of jobs, but starting first in real estate, investing, and then going into, even did some cross-border M&A, and then media, private equity, and then finally, really, really early stage startup investing at um, 500 Startups, which is you know, very, very early research accelerator and seed fund. And then moved back to the Bay Area at the very end of 2015. Didn't think I was going to do much with China anymore, but was, you know, still keeping tabs on on things. And then Ying and I know Kevin, who is the founder of Pandaily, Pandaily, which is an English language media focused on China tech. And then so been talking to Kevin, you know, even before he started Pandaily. And then I told him he should do a podcast. 
Uh, and then <laughs> I was like, hey, podcasts are all the rage. This is in 2017. Should do a podcast on China Tech. Seems like it could be fun. And then he came back to me after a couple months and was like, well, I like the podcast idea, but I couldn't find anyone to do it. So how about you do it? <laughs> yeah. So that's that's how first we got started. And then well, very quickly, what I realized is that, you know, by the end of 2019, I would call it, I was like, wow, some of these companies that I'm just sort of covering for fun and personal passion for Tech Buzz are actually really doing really, really well. And I should really think harder about whether or not I want to drop the China connection. And then so in 2020, decided to really pick it up full time. We took some investors to China with us in 2019 to visit a bunch of the companies that we talk about on the podcast, which was really fun. And then uh, we were going to do that last year more, you know, as part of Tech Buzz, but then the pandemic cut short all that. So um, yeah, so we've, been, we've pivoted into more of a community now online for uh, investors. And then I personally do a bunch of consulting for um, funds interested in investing in China Tech, actually. So that's been that's been also really great as well, because it really keeps me, you know, deep in the weeds and then interacting with actual companies and trying to understand what's going on beyond just the headlines. That's great. Well, it comes through on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I can't talk about everything I get. You know, a lot of information is proprietary, but I try to share what I can. Yeah. Well, I would definitely say it's one of the top few sort of like uh, authoritative sources on going beyond the headlines for an English-speaking audience on what's going on in China Tech. And I think there's so much that is happening that is uh, reported if you are Chinese, but if you're American, you're like, I, I I just occasionally get this random story about Jack Ma disappearing. Like, I would love to, I would love to understand thematically what's going on under those headlines uh, in China. Yeah. And, you know, I think one thing I, I should point out when it comes to my personal experience, and also this happens to Jive with Ying because we, that's where we met. We met when we we're both living in Beijing, which is that we were there in retrospect at a very auspicious time in China Tech because prior to, let's call it 2013, 14, China Tech was really, really small. So I was really there when uh, the first couple of years, Really, you could count on your hand the number of people doing angel investments in China, right? So there there literally was a book called Angel Investors of China. I think it had like 12 men in it. So oh my gosh. yeah. <laughs> it's like the it's like the uh the Warren Buffett used to go through uh you know the Moody's manual of companies to like yeah, look at all yeah, the companies yeah, exactly. that there's like a manual of the <laughs> angel here, here you go, here are all the people. And then so I happened to then join five hundred with you know, which at the time, by the way, a lot of people were like, Why are you doing this? This this is way too early. This is really bizarre. This is not a business model that works in China. And then it's not it's not like I knew what policies were coming, but then two years later, boom, you have a couple thousand accelerators, you have, you know, hundreds of early stage funds, and you have a, a total sea change shift in attitudes around entrepreneurship and startups where people went from thinking that was something honestly only losers did if they couldn't get a real job to now, oh, all the best and brightest would of course go and you know, create their own startups. And that happened really around 2014 or so. So, and, and I think you can see it in the types of companies that are public today, right? Some of the most popular companies that are always talked about in media, uh, you know, Pinduoduo, ByteDance, Meituan, et cetera, all these companies really started in the last decade. And 
Pinduoduo is a great example of a company that started in the last, you know, five, six years. So this is when it all happened. Basically, all the capital started flooding in and the social attitudes changed. And so how do you get information? I mean, you're you're this like great beacon of information for folks in the U.S. who want to learn about this. Are you talking with founders? Do you work with companies? How does it come to you? Yeah, exactly. So number one, because of the timing, I was very lucky to be there uh, when all this was getting started. So met a ton of the people who are now, you know, like the the tier one, tier two funds in China, fund managers and entrepreneurs too, of course. So before the pandemic, you know, both of us used to go back quite often, I would say probably quarterly. Uh, now, because of the travel restrictions, then it, it is primarily online, but the good thing is that because of the pandemic, actually, everyone in China is also more used to being online. In fact, some of the VC GPs that I talked to, they themselves are not even based in China right now. They're like in <laughs> oh, Singapore wow. or Taiwan or something. Yeah, so for for various reasons. And so um, everyone is now used to doing um, Zoom meetings and, and calls just like here we have in the U.S., yeah, I basically talk to a lot of people who are on the ground. So operators, investors. Very cool. All right, Ying, what's your story? So I think Ray brought me into the story when she mentioned that we met in China. It's been like 10 years ago when I went to China right after college. And even when we started this podcast, China wasn't a super hot topic in China tech, even three years ago, was not as appreciated. And I totally. feel like things have just totally changed. And it's interesting to be able to say, oh, I've seen the rise of different sectors of tech, especially like online to offline um, companies going overseas, like the rise of all the digital live streaming and e-commerce um, happen in China while like also watching concurrent trends in the U.S. But to go back, my story is I came to the U.S. when I was two from Guangxi. I'm actually a fourth tier city and a lot of my extended family that I'm very close with, are still in like fourth tier and some third tier cities, and they're all in Guangxi, except my parents and brother. So throughout my career, I've been more on the operator side. I've worked with over, I would say over half, so over 50% China-based fully Chinese teams, like embedded as part of the team. I've been an employee. I've been a startup co-founder in China. This was like 2012 to 2014. I fell into this niche initially when I moved to the Bay Area from China in 2014, and that was the year that a lot of Chinese apps were trying to go overseas. You guys might know about this, and I'd be brought on to help them with their U.S. business deals or set up an office or like do PR and tell their story. And today I have two partners in China. Most of my deep-rooted opinions and like cultural schemas of China have been shaped by a combination of family backgrounds and early personal and professional experiences. But I do want to emphasize that we really have to put in time to gather current knowledge. So, you know, when people use the term like China expert or refer to tech buzz, I do think it's not something we just can spit off. It's just like you guys making an acquired episode and you have to put in a lot of the time to do the research. So, Ben, well, let's start with you. Now my turn to ask questions because we want to introduce you to our audience. Um, tell us about yourself. Yeah, great question. Well, in the spirit of brevity, uh, I am the co-host of The Acquired Podcast, which very recently hit the the number one spot in the technology charts in uh, an Apple podcast, which we're super pumped about. You know, and it has been a David and my labor of love for the last 
five and a half years that, you know, slowly stacks a brick on top of each other one episode after another. So 150 something episodes in each one on its very own company. Uh, so our, our goal in doing these episodes is to like really do a deep dive and try and understand the complete history and strategy of every company that we cover from Tesla to Tencent to Berkshire Hathaway and, uh, and really just trying to, I think a lot of times you can read analysis on companies and other times you can read biographies about founders. And our goal is really to create sort of the intersection of those things where you both have the historical context of how it got that way but also have that sort of real-time business analysis of like, what's interesting about this business that I should pay attention to, lessons I can learn and, and take to my own business. And so David and I, the funniest thing is we came at this from backgrounds where when we started, and I'll, I'll spoil one thing on David's intro, he was a venture capitalist and I was a developer and product manager. And uh, and our roles have have been very uh, ironically become reversed where I'm now a, a, a full-time tech investor uh, and general partner at PSL Ventures and and at Pioneer Square Labs, our our startup studio, <laughs> and David is the uh, the independent angel investor and uh, no longer a VC. Uh, but yeah, my background is is largely in uh, in engineering and and product, and I worked at at Microsoft and have helped start um, a few dozen companies out of our our startup studio, Pioneer Square Labs. Wow! Wow! Yeah. As uh, we did a LP episode after our Meituan episode with Lillian Lee as a guest, and uh, she was explaining to us all the different terms for, quote unquote, you know, whatever it is we do in, in China. And uh, I, I like to say I'm I'm, I'm now a self media. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, self media, we media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Cool. But yeah, as Ben said, I uh, well, I was an investment banker a long time ago on Wall Street with your former colleagues uh, at uh, at Rain Group now. I was at UBS when they were all there. And then I worked at Madrona for many years, which is a venture firm in, in Seattle. That's that how you guys know each other? Yeah. yeah. So we Seattle. intersected. We were both at Madrona at the same time. Oh, okay. Me, me writing code, David uh, writing checks. Oh, exactly. interesting. And now, uh, and now the roles have reversed. So, so I handle all the storytelling on Acquired and Ben does the hardcore financial analysis. Oh, interesting. It's great. We both yeah. learn. Oh, okay. I didn't realize like that's how you guys split up the work. That's awesome. Well, the funny thing is we never did either. Like that, <laughs> it just sort of evolved that way where where both of us were sort of drawn to different areas and wanted to spend more time on each of those things and fortunately it makes for a good, you know, two puzzle pieces fitting together to make a good show because uh, it, it I would say that was very unplanned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree uh, about this especially the strategy of like telling the the story you know, especially around the founding team as what well, and the context, the greater context of what things were like when this company got started, which I think you guys do a great job of. And then, of course, also the business strategy as it currently stands. But yeah, just telling the history of the company gives people a lot of insight. I mean, when, when you're like long-term investors, you want to look back at an established company and see the decisions they made in the past, right? It's going to give you a lot of information about how they're going to probably perceive strategy making in the future. Well, you could not have uh, teed us up better with strategy making in the future to discussing what is happening now in China in terms of trends uh, for entrepreneurship. So uh, I'd sort of like to turn it back to you. Feel free to start wherever you want. But for both of our audiences, what are some trends that they should be paying attention to and that we'll be covering three to five years from now in the next Meituan and the next Pinduoduo in future episodes? So actually, that's a great question. And at least in the near future, what we're focused on at 
our insider community, <laughs> what I said for this year, what I think are going to be really interesting are a couple of things. One is consumer brands, and that's specifically on consumer brands being run like internet companies, which we can talk about. There is also community group buying, which is very disruptive, and it's a new form of e-commerce that's happening now in rural China that really kicked into high gear last year because of the pandemic. And then actually the third thing, I, I will briefly mention it, but I don't actually have too much to share on the topic at the moment, which is if we think about China tech more broadly than just internet or than even just software, then this whole new thing of electric vehicles and autonomous driving is really, really interesting in China as well. And actually a lot of experts I talk to think that the U.S. and China are really kind of on par, or some people even think China is ahead in that sector. And that's definitely something I'm watching. I'm more familiar with the AV front and less with the actual vehicle making. But those are all interesting things. Well, maybe let's first start with that direct-to-consumer and that brand piece um, and kick it over to Ying. Sort of, How do you think about that and, and what's going on in China there? So at a high level, I think we've always thought that, you know, in my observation, the level of quality of Chinese consumer brands, like Ray mentioned, is going to go up. And this is totally in parallel with innovation in China continuing, China no longer being a copycat, manufacturing and designing a lot of its own products. Ray, you mentioned consumer companies being run more like tech companies, but I'll delve more into the specifically the DTC side, so direct-to-consumer brands. So I think there's a huge market opportunity for domestic Chinese brands to gain market share in China. And that's not just because, you know, again, the media narrative is all about like the youth being very nationalist, but actually it's because if you look at developed countries, right? So for example, the United States, we actually have something like a quarter of FMCG products are foreign brands, are non-US. But if you go to China- What's FMCG? FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods. Ah, yeah. Uh. So, so, so your basic like consumer staples, et cetera, right? But if you look at China again, the foreign brand penetration is actually north of forty percent, very, very high, much higher than that for certain other categories. And so, if we assume that China is going to look more like the rest of the world in terms of how strong its domestic economy and brands are relative to foreign ones, then right, there's a there's a huge market share that domestic brands can capture. And this is accelerated by the fact that in recent years, manufacturing, uh, design, all these things that go into brand has significantly improved. So like I was saying to you, Ben, the OEM of the past, the original equipment manufacturers were you know, the model is that you go to China, you already have your product spec, you already have your brand, you have your design, you go there just looking for someone to make it for you. Those days are long past. OEMs are now ODMs, right? They also do a lot of design where you can just go then with some sort of much fuzzier, let's call it product spec, and then they'll actually design something for you as well as manufacture it to Today, I hear people call it, you know, call these factories OBMs, right? The original brand manufacturings were literally they're huh. doing pretty much everything for you huh. except the final branding. You know, they they even will do a lot of the marketing copy, et cetera, for you as well, because they've just gotten so much better at all these parts of the entire process. I should caveat with saying 
that is still, in my opinion, a lot of PR. So not all the <laughs> so the the quote unquote original brand manufacturing is is basically still you know ODMs. But the point is that they are significantly better than before, right? So you will see uh, again. You see this already on like in the U.S. and Amazon, right? You already have a bunch of brands from China uh, like trying to brand themselves, right? Uh, on on Amazon selling commodity products. Uh, what we're talking about, however, is not you know your like no name, unpronounceable brand from China selling like an Apple Firewire or something. Right. iPhone chargers or stuff. Yeah. We're talking more now about like people building real brand IP, right? So I think one of the examples that is very, very popular in China right now is probably less well known outside of China is this brand called Genki Forest. And it is right now a $6 billion valuation company that wants to be the Coca-Cola of China, right? So we already saw last year, this company called Yatsen, uh, aka Perfect Diary, wants to be the L'Oreal of China. And then uh, last year, we actually already also saw the listing of the P&G of China. So there's all these brands trying to take over the consumer staples categories. And the newest entrant, and I think it's really interesting, is Genki Force, which is Coca-Cola of China. And they're just starting off with basically your carbonated beverages and the different thing that they're doing is that the company is actually run by people who come from a social gaming background. So mm, they huh. think about everything in terms of, you know, marketing, ROI, right? And doing very, very quick A-B testing and very, very quick iterations. And are they using OBMs, ODMs to, to actually yeah, exactly. make the soda? They're, they're just a, a brand. They're just a brand. They're just slapping huh. on their brand and marketing, right? So they did start with their own factory, but it was only in mid last year and that's after you know that that's that's like that's a few years after they started right so same thing with perfect wow. diary by the way the cosmetics brand when they went public they had also just started you know their own factory i will say in the beverage in- industry even in the us that's super common so like i know, this is going to sound a little trite but i know the uh the, the founders of four loco and at one point in 2011 they had uh, 100 people working at the company, 96 of them were salespeople. And oh then my they God. had the founders and a CFO, and they work with a contract manufacturer. So uh, I think it's, it's technically a contract brewer, and this is the most common way for any beverage, or especially alcoholic beverages in the U.S. to start, is to contract out everything but the distribution and the branding. Huh. That makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't think I don't think Genki Forest looks quite that. I mean, uh, they are doing more R and D, but I think what differentiates them is how many SKUs that they're constantly trying. Uh, so they do small batch testing, and then they will they will do it on both the marketing front as well as sort of the physical products, of course. And then you know, according to the founder, only five percent of their products make it into sort of mass channels, right? Because the mass wow. the mass offline channels are actually very hard to penetrate and also to manage. But so like this isn't like Coca-Cola where it's the recipe that has been mm-hmm. one soda that's been sold for no. 150 years. It's lots of different products. Yeah, it's a lot of like so maybe maybe even a better example is to is to look at Perfect Diary, which is they're doing a lot of collaborations, right? So like all the new brands these days, right? They're doing a lot of collaborations. They're making like very sort of seasonal-ish products, so they'll put out something I think their average is one new product a week, and then whatever makes it, you know, quote unquote, becomes a bestseller, then they'll put more more resources 
around it. And it's the same thing for Genki Forest, right? So they are supposedly coming out with a new product every few days. And then they'll do sort of small batch testing with it. And then uh, 5% or so of these products will then become, you know, a sort of further bestseller that they'll they'll put into more distribution. And that is basically how, if you think about it, it's very similar to how you iterate on a internet software product, right? So this is what I mean by companies and brands in China are now trying to do this, applying it to physical products. And they're doing this because they have such good access to a very, very advanced and flexible supply chain. I think a lot of people, when I talk to them, they're thinking of factories as like, you know, still very manual and, you know, people on these like long lines. But I visited uh, some of these factories and they're actually quite advanced, right? So there's a lot of automation. Like I said, they're, they're, they're all running software to manage themselves. And they have a lot of design in-house talent. And, you know, the advancements in fan- manufacturing have gotten, have really primarily focused on speed. In China, so when you think about manufacturing, the minimum order quantity is always a barrier for mm-hmm. most people, right? So, especially in uh, consumer products like clothing and, uh, well, clothing being, I think, the main one, China has really been able to push forward on having more flexible manufacturing. By what I mean is, when we visited Ruhan, who is a I don't even know how you say their English name is Ruhan, but anyways, they're just go- about to go private, but they were uh, previously, you know, we, we did an episode on them, how they were started by the quote unquote Kylie Jenner of China. Mm. So it's basically influencers making their own clothing and branded products. And when you say about to go private, are they public now? They are public now. Huh. Yeah. About to go private. Uh, haven't done that well. <laughs> But we, when we visited them, we, we saw all their, you know, like all their clothing and all this stuff. And then we also visited Mogujie, who is a, a, you know, live streaming shopping app. And, you know, both of them told us that, like, number one, you know, they had such good access to manufacturing and turnaround times were so fast. It's about seven days, right, from a design to being made and then shipped out the door, right? Seven days. That's wow. actually really, really fast. And for a company like Shein, uh, which Yin can talk about, that is apparently down to five days. And uh, uh, yeah, like a company like Shein is pushing out a thousand new SKUs every day on their website. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear about Shein. Yeah. Th- I've heard about this. This is crazy. Ying, bring us up to speed here. Okay. So I think that what Ray talked about with marketing and like really flexible supply chains enabling the tech-based teams to focus on marketing and online marketing, which is actually like a highly valued skill, just like it is in the US. So so Shein takes five days of designing to ship. This is on average. Um, they're producing a thousand new designs a day. They have $10 billion in revenue. Um, and so no, it's all, it's all women's clothes, right? <laughs> yeah. All women's clothes. It's kind of like H&M fast they, fashion. They might have some men's clothes. I feel like they might have some men's clothes. I don't know. We can check. We should check. I can check. <laughs> do you want some, David? I, I do. I do. <laughs> it's super cheap, too. It's super cheap. I don't know if you want to wear oh, them. Well, no, they, they do have, they have men's and kids and beauty. So I can order something that was designed five days ago? Yes. It might take longer to ship and get to you, but five days, yeah. It will take a long time to ship. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. It's like Wish shipping times. Yeah. Slightly better. Have you guys ever ordered from Wish? I haven't. I've been tempted to, but I never have. I know only of Wish because I've seen it on Laker jerseys. 
<laughs> yeah, this has like yeah. wish. I do think that's a good comparison. So you order and the quality of clothes, in my opinion, isn't very high. I think I didn't order just to test it, but this was because I was benchmarking to another company. Um, but Shein has, as of time of recording, 19 million fans on Instagram. So note that I'm saying Instagram. Wow. This is not a Chinese social media platform. Um, and we'll get a little bit into that too with some of the cross-border DTC happenings. This is amazing. There, I'm on, I'm on the men's section and oh. <laughs> you can get swimsuits for it's true wow oh my god yeah and for reference Uniqlo's at 26 billion dollars so we're kind of benchmarking Shein as the success story of overseas DTC brands coming out of China and then Ray had mentioned we visited Moguzie in October 2018 And they're also doing small batch designs and producing a lot of new designs. So this is all innovations within the supply chain and shortening the time it takes to get new designs to market. And when people used to refer to fast fashion, you'd look at like a Zara or something. The knock was, oh, they're, you know, busting their ass to get this to customers' hands, you know, five weeks after they come up with the concept. And now we've shortened it to like five days. Is that yes. right? Yeah. Well, there's, there's the shipping aspect of it. But yeah, if this was happening in China, then you you can get, <laughs> I think you probably get it shipped the next day. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Wow. And, and there's always been a bunch of people that are concerned about the environmental impact. And at least I know there's a lot of negative sentiment around fast fashion. How does that play into how all this is developing? I would say at least right now, like for a company like Shein, right? First of all, Shein is called ultra fast fashion now, I guess. Uh, I don't think the environmental impact is probably fully baked into it. And I'm personally not a fan of the model. But I think the point we're trying to make is just that the supply chain is really flexible now. And the end goal really is to have it to be so flexible that you can make it as demand comes in, right? So that it is completely just in time. And then you have zero inventory risk or zero inventory. You basically lower your cost so much. Yeah, it's like not even inventory. It's not even like just in time manufacturing. It's just in time creation and design of products. So they're like, there's no, there's not even any product risk. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's where people are trying to get to. We're definitely not quite there yet. Yeah. But that is the future. And yeah, we picked these categories. Shein is actually an old company. It's over 10 years old. Uh, because again, these supply chain innovations take a long time, right? But the supply ch- chain innovations then can also be extended to other industries, like you were saying, you know, or like we were saying, the drinks, as well as cosmetics, et cetera, and all these other categories. There's a growing proportion of Chinese companies that want to sell into overseas markets, including the U.S., that are DTC fashion brands. Um, I've personally seen a number of business plans, including one women's fashion brand that I'm currently working with, and all of themselves benchmark themselves to Shein. So they'll have a graph on their pitch deck of like, here's the supply chain process. Here's like what Shein does. Here's what we're doing. Pretty much looks the same, or there will be some minor tweaks. Um, And then the end product is a little different, but it's usually in fashion women's clothing. Um, I haven't seen cosmetics yet, but while their innovation in how they handle the supply chain and how they position themselves to consumers might vary a little bit, what they share with Shein is a commonality of low price, a heavy reliance on social media. So remember when we said Shein had 19 million Instagram followers, 
This is something that I personally see as kind of similar to a heavy-handed version of the whole utility apps overseas craze of like 2015, 16, or 14, um, in that you can have a domestic-based team really master social media as long as they speak English and get some help with your customer management and then get the right operational skill. So kind of like use labor to make up for what you don't have in either local savvy or necessarily like B2B um, software technology in order to just like get the performance marketing right and sell purely online straight to consumers. And like, there's some tweaks with this, but in general, like investors seem to think it's worth betting on. And she and it's also on Amazon, right? Yes. Yeah. I don't think all their stuff is though. Not everything. We're not the target customer yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I asked on Twitter, I was like, hey, have have anyone heard of this app called Shein? And then all the people who replied were basically dads who had teenage daughters. They were like, yes, <laughs> my daughter orders for this all the time. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Interesting. So there's another factor in this overseas expansion, which is that within China, DTC brands insist on having a gross profit margin of 30 to 40%. So that's kind of just the benchmark. Otherwise, consumers will think, oh, your prices are too high and it won't work. But depending on the industry, brands can charge like a roughly 10% um, margin on their costs. But when someone like Xiaomi enters the same market, then they'll kind of push all of the prices down to, to something like 5% and all of the other players will die. So this is kind of another case of wow. like the market in China is so saturated in many categories that some people think it's less vicious to try to sell overseas, even though they don't have the native competitive advantage. Oh, that's fascinating. It's very similar to what we were talking about, David, on the Meituan episode, where you have to move so quickly and grow so quickly because there's like 10 times the number of people at any given time trying to do the same company that you're doing. And there's enough consumers to sort of like support several different companies at once. And if there is any winner take all dynamic, then it's just going to accrue very quickly to whoever gets out ahead the fastest. And otherwise, there's just like a massive race to the bottom on who will be willing to compress their margins the most. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's just so competitive. Yeah. It's so competitive unless you can create this superior brand or customer experience, right? So for Shein and all these other brands in China, how is offline playing into this? Is Are they also doing physical retail in China or, or, or overseas? Uh, or are these purely online brands? Yeah. So, so for Shein... That's actually a purely online brand selling exclusively outside of China. But for a lot of the new innovations that we're seeing inside of China, it's actually a merging of online and offline, right? So it depends. It's happening at two levels. The earlier we were talking about primarily at the brand level, there's also innovation happening at the channel level. And by channel, I basically mean like retail stores, right? So I think one thing that China definitely leads in that gets lost a little bit in in all the coverage is that yes China leads in e-commerce but China actually also leads in digital retail by digital retail what i mean is actually an offline experience that is highly digitized right so that's very very different from the US and i actually I, you, this is something you can sort of intuitively understand when you go shopping in China but i think the uh, we did an episode with um, Jordan Burke who is the former head of Walmart e-commerce and digital experience in China and i think the way he breaks it down is really smart and during the pandemic we saw US stores right use 
their shops as pickup points for e-commerce, right? But in China, actually, that's something that's been happening for the last 10 years where shops are designed that way from the get-go because e-commerce has such a high penetration. So it's totally normal for people to, you know, shop online and go pick up at their local store. So the way the store is laid out is even different, right? Like where the warehouses are, how much, you know, what the, the flow of the store, et cetera. And this is because, you know, if you ask Gen Z here in the US, like they see less and less difference between online and offline. Well, I think in China, because the, the society is so highly digitized, that's that's actually the typical experience for many, many consumers. They just think of it as shopping. They don't think of it as necessarily like... Online shopping versus yeah. going to the store, huh? Yeah, the stores have, like I said, n- number one, their outfit for um, picking, being able to be picked up. They're also much more integrated with their apps, right? So how many times you go to Costco and or at least I go to Costco and I, I'm asking for some help. And they're like, we can't help you because that's Costco.com, right? And, this, yep. and you're in the store, right? But but in China, like a, lo- a lot of these experiences are fully integrated. And then the app is also something people use when they're inside the store. And then there's also a lot more personalization, right? Because again, personalization is very important to the average Chinese consumer. But it's been shown that um, Asian consumers in general actually require a lot, a lot higher personalization or want a lot higher personalization than Western consumers. And what's an example of that when you say personalization? Like who, what's a company that's done it well? What's an example of personalization? Well, what I mean is like the actually all the e-commerce I, I would say all the e-commerce uh, companies in China do it fairly well, like in the sense that the user behavior on some platforms, especially like Pinduoduo, is much more of a feed-based and recommendation-pushed experience. Is in like the merchandising that you're seeing in your shopping experience yes. is yes. like versus, you know, you walk into a Target and literally everybody who walks into that Target gets the same merchandising experience. Yeah, that's a big part of it. It's basically getting recommended what the store thinks you want based on your past purchases, right? Based on your, you know, experiences, but also getting very personalized promotions, right? So um, I think something that, I don't know if this is too much of a tangent, but in China, like there is a huge team called operations uh, that's really hard to find a analog in the, you know, in Silicon Valley companies, but all the e-commerce platforms actually have huge operations teams that are constantly working through promotions and working with merchants so that every time you, that you log on as a user, you're seeing, you know, different content than when you logged on, you know, the day before or this morning or whatever. Yeah, because people expect like, you know, people expect, you know, new content and new things to be offered to them constantly. It's funny that while this is not really a big thing in e-commerce in the US. I'm sure some companies do it well, but to your point, much more common in China. It's actually very common in gaming companies in the US to have a live operations team. You'll see, I spent a year working in the gaming industry and you'll frequently see people whose background includes live ops. And that basically means they were running the in-game stores promotions for, you know, a live period of time with a lot of personalization built oh in. Oh my gosh, that's, the, I didn't She's realize that. She's a gamer, that, but that a makes gamer. A lot of, yeah, but I didn't realize that, but that makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. First of all, gaming was basically how, like, I would say 10 years ago, most people were working on some sort of gaming company, or if they weren't working on a gaming company, their ultimate monetization was gaming, right? So they could be working on XYZ, but they were basically trying to funnel people into games, because that was the only, like, 
Th- that was basically the only business model that worked in China. Yeah. 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 So a lot of people have this. We, thing. we got a tangent here for yeah. a sec. What kind of gaming are we talking? Like, like legal, like League of Legends or like <laughs> mobile gaming? Or? Oh, I, Ying thinks I'm a gamer just because like I played more games than she did. <laughs> but yeah, my in college, in because she was like, I played games all through school. Yeah. I did. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, exactly. In college, I played a lot of StarCraft and, yes. you know, Told EverQuest. You. And this is very, this is very much dating uh, myself. EverQuest is like setting the bar. Yeah. Like that is. Uh... Well, we, I Warcraft, mean, the I way that, World um, of Warcraft. Yeah. when we had uh, Rahul Vora from Superhuman on the show, I mean, he really, like, yeah, Superhuman is great and all, but he really like won cred with me when he was like, oh yeah, like, uh, I, he says, uh, I was a game designer. And we're like, wait, and I did the research thing. You were like an original game designer on RuneScape. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. RuneScape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. That, that was one of the deals I worked on at uh, Rain, actually. I love Rain it. Rain invested in Jagex, which was that's the current right. company of RuneScape. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. <laughs> that's hilarious. But I think, I think you know, Ben, what you said is, is just a really good point that I think actually that's a lot of where Chinese companies probably get their inspiration. But to to this day, right, operations remain really, really important. And, you know, everything is quote unquote operated on, by the way, even the bullet comments on Billy Billy uh, have operators, right? Like mm. getting special promotions or planting comments, Oh, yeah. we, we haven't covered uh, Billy Billy yet on the show. So introduce us to that company. What is Billy Billy? <laughs> Billy Billy likes to call itself the YouTube of China, but it's basically the stickiest platform for Gen Z to create and watch videos. I mean, that's not really how they make money. They have a more diverse set of revenue sources. But what they're really known for is this platform, much like YouTube, where people are uploading creative videos generally between i think five and 20 minutes so longer not short videos oh so not not like douyin not like, like douyin exactly type. and huh. more much much more like youtube that's why they do compare themselves to youtube except their business model is different right they don't make much money off of advertising they have also a gaming platform they have live streaming e-commerce uh it's actually pretty diverse at this point yeah Huh. I mean, that's just so that is so much more common in China than the US where like it's just not an advertising driven economy. It's yeah. Yeah, you're Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. With the exception of ByteDance, who has made huge strides in advertising. Yes, that I would say, you know, well, actually, Alibaba as well is is really an advertising based company in, in many senses. But yes, you're correct. Yeah, and I, and I guess I should clarify when I say that too, because I don't know like GDP figures spent on advertising. But in China, it seems like it never really was the default answer. That so many people are like, oh, we'll put games in, or we'll steer you toward commerce. Like there will be a more direct way to create and capture value. That's absolutely right. I mean, it has a lot to do with the fact that it was just kind of early, right? Like China just crossed like ten thousand dollars in GDP per capita. I don't know if you guys know the U.S. number, but it's over sixty-five thousand, huh. right? There's a pretty big gap. <laughs> and you know, for I would say the first couple of years I was in China, I had a lot of friends in advertising, and they could tell you that it was really difficult to sell advertising. Well, why? Because at the time, you really you should just invest your profits into growing distribution that you got way more bang for your buck out of just organically growing, you know, distribution points than trying to advertise. Because advertising, if you think about it, it's really for a kind of saturated economy where all the distribution is already built out, right? And you're just trying to compete with each other. But at the 
you know, with China, uh, until recently, at least, it really was just like, just get your products in front of the customer, Yeah, you know, <laughs> versus like trying to say I'm better than the other guy. It's like, no, no, you win just by being there. So this is this is a great transition point to um, the next big trend I think we wanted to discuss, which is community group buying, which we discussed a good bit with Lillian on the Meituan follow-up on the LP show. But for everybody else, I mean, to me, like this is the uh, like a perfect example of this, the focus on distribution in China. Like this, that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> distribution, yeah. This this is exactly a distribution play, yeah. So yeah, what what is community group buying? Community group buying is very simple. People are applying a group buying mechanism to buying fresh groceries to start with, but now also moving into other goods to parts of rural China where there isn't a lot of choice and isn't great logistics for such products. And then so what they're doing is they're collating demand, right? And they're aggregating it. And then the platforms basically send it to you the next day for your own self-pickup, thereby saving money on the last mile logistics. And these are like, to the you know previous discussion about advertising and not needing to differentiate your products, like these are the ultimate unbranded, like th- these are products from rural farmers, right? Like like vegetables and stuff, right? Like that, that people are buying through community group buying platforms. And the platforms are... Meituan, mm-hmm. PDD, you know, uh, Alibaba, like enormous tech companies, right? Yeah, although although actually, if you look at community group, I we just did a call with an alternative data firm on this, and you can see that people are so so. While fresh food is sort of like the way to get people hooked onto your platform, so like in China, for example, like everyone sells eggs because I don't know why, like eggs are just people just love cheap eggs. And then I, I heard that nowadays, actually, they're trying to get people to get vaccinated by gifting you free eggs along with your vaccination. <laughs> so yeah, eggs are just like- We really get donuts. Anyways, <laughs> they get eggs. Yeah, <laughs> eggs, are, eggs, are like, eggs are like one of the best sellers on, on all these platforms, actually. But wow. you can also see from some of these platforms are shifting into more branded and non-perishable products as well. So like boxed milk, right? Uh, juices, you know, and then there was one platform. I think they're just trying to brush their GMV. I won't say their name, but they're actually, their bestseller was actually the iPhone 12. So. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't quite seem like the same thing. No. <laughs> so so there's a platform that's selling iPhones yeah. via this community group buying model yeah. in, rural, in rural China. It's one of the, yeah, it's one of the top ones that are well-funded. Wow. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that this is a model, but you can see, like, while it's starting off with groceries, you can see pretty clearly that this is really just rural e-commerce. And the group buying aspect is, uh, you know, if, if you consider group buying as something like the order only happens when enough people order it, that's not really happening right now. Uh, anymore either, right? So, like, even the group buying aspect, I, I would say everything about these words is kind of up for debate. I would just call it hyper-local rural e-commerce, <laughs> which by the way, Alibaba, their new initiative, that's what they're calling it. They're calling it hyper-local e-commerce. And the way this all works is fascinating, right? Like the platforms are pushing so much of the logistics work onto users and leaders of these group buying platforms themselves, right? So it's not like 
PDD or Meituan or whomever is actually doing very little to get these products in the hands of customers. Well, that's not strictly correct. You are correct in that they're not doing the last mile, but they have to do the entire procurement, which in the past in China would be, you know, you go to the farms, there were two or three layers of distribution before you as the final end customer, you know, got it from a grocery store or the wet market or, or whatever. But now then Meituan or Pinduoduo has to do this entire thing, which requires actually a lot of cold chain logistics for perishable foods that most of them don't have, right? So we did an episode on e-grocery in mm-hmm. China, and I don't remember the exact stat, but you can compare the you know per capita i guess cold storage uh, sort of capacity and it china's like a fraction of what's here in the us uh, so so that is actually a really really good sector for you to invest in <laughs> interesting so they're doing all of the they are doing all of the warehousing supply chain it's yes. the last mile that they're pushing down onto users yeah and you know it's arguable whether or not it's really really all that much cheaper because the pinduoduo ceo chen lei has actually said in agricultural e-commerce, it's not the last mile that's expensive. It's the first mile. Huh. And why is that? Because getting it from the farmer, I guess, to the warehouse and then doing all that is actually, um, you know, th- that part of the supply chain isn't as well developed as if you think about it, sort of the same day, same city courier system. Like a lot of the e-commerce actually already accommodates that. They've already built that out. Yeah. Well, and just the refrigeration and cold storage. Yeah. I assume none of that is happening during the last mile. No, no. So it, yeah, the way it works right now for all the platforms is we we actually like took some deep dives into the warehousing because that that is really where you're going to understand if if this platform is doing it correctly or sustainably and, and can make it right. So they actually franchise out the warehouses, so you can go, for example, and become like a Meitua and CGP warehouse pickup point, I guess. And then you you need to have like a you need to have a certain number of capital. You need to have this building that fits the requirements, and then you need to have like uh, cars or cert- like some type of vehicle that fits their requirements, etc. And this number of laborers, and then you can go and become a franchisee of huh. of the system. Yeah. Wow. So I think to frame this, this is one of the areas that I'm personally really excited about seeing up close and in person when we can travel again. Because again, a lot of the content that we're seeing around this is reported on and it's not people that Ray and I talk to on a daily basis because they're usually in first or second, maybe second tier cities. But this is really about, like we said, digital penetration into rural China, It is also about micro entrepreneurship. So the community leaders who are taking a cut of the total sales within their community are essentially, you know, being contracted and get like a nice partial salary every month for playing that role. And it's a way for the large platform. So you mentioned Pinduoduo PDD, but also Alibaba and JD of putting almost... I would say almost billions of dollars um, U.S. Yeah, no, no, not almost. Yeah, they are billions of dollars. Over like billions of dollars into their own platforms or into their investments. And sort of like uh, at a high level too, what we talk about a lot on TechBuzz is the whole, what was it, trickle up, uh, consumption in, what was that phrase, right? It's hard to translate, but 
Consumption upgrade is when people in China talk about the first and second tier cities, you know, increasing in their consumption and basically being like developed economy consumers. And then there is also the consumer quote unquote downgrade, which is when all the brands are now discovering that rural China is where it's at. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. And is this race pouring billions of dollars into the tier three and tier four cities? Is that just because they're out of growth in tier one and tier two cities and this is where they need to go to grow? Or, or why is there a capital battle going on there? Yeah, huge. Because if you look at China, the growth has slowed down for all of China. But if you look at rural China, it's actually still something like 10% GDP growth per capita year on year, right? So, and this is about depending on how you slice it, but I generally like to take just the first and second tier cities out. The rest of China, quote unquote, rural China, third tier and below is is still a billion people. Yeah, this is, you know, for Western audiences, just to give a sense of scale, like tier one and tier two cities in China are like bigger than any cities in the West, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like tier three and tier four are two. They're sometimes bigger, especially San Francisco. SF is really small. It's like a town. Yeah. <laughs> So we're still talking about, yeah, as you say, a, a billion people in tier three and tier four cities in, in China. Yeah, yeah, and below. And even, you know, again, tier five, it's it's really interesting because China has really good infrastructure in some sense, but then, and, and a lot of people. But when you think about like retail distribution, think about like in the US, right? We have access to really good, you know, grocery stores, supermarkets, because it's been over a hundred years that people have been investing in these logistics, real estate, cold chain, et cetera. And in China, it's just gonna take some time, right? Like they're already growing really, really fast. But but to give you an example of what a fifth tier city looks like, a fifth tier city, because I was trying to explain to an African entrepreneur exploring CGB, I was like, I was like, oh well, the you know, in China it really works well in these types of cities and fifth tier cities. She's like, what does that look like? So, anyways, I found some stats and pictures for her. It's about a million people usually. So, <laughs> which is yeah. the size of San Francisco? Yeah, exactly. It's about a million people typically. I, I looked up like ten cities; they're all about a million. And you know, if you look at the skyline. They don't have like necessarily a ton of skyscrapers, but they have some tall buildings. Uh, the the main thing is that you'll find. I thought this was like hilarious. Is that all of them have either a Starbucks about to open or just mm-hmm. opened? So that that is like the level of GDP that you can think about. So and by the way, Starbucks is about three to four dollars per cup in China, right? So it's not cheap. It's premium in, in China. So uh, when Starbucks is opening, I think it's a great indicator of this this city being on the up and up and being able to consume more. Well, this explains too, I think, you know, one of the things Lillian really talked about on on the LP episode about CGB in the question of why, why is this so important? And why are all these big platforms investing billions of dollars into it? It's not about selling groceries to people. It's about capturing user behavior for all of these new people coming on to tech platforms, right? And so if, if they start transacting for their staple everyday goods on PDD or on Meituan or on JD or on Alibaba. And there's a really good chance that they're going to keep doing more stuff on those platforms, especially as their disposable income goes up, right? Yeah, these are high frequency purchases. And then, you know, even the disposable income, I think you can't just look at the the pure like income level, right? Because it's the same thing as in the US where 
If you live in a quote-unquote tier one urban center, you might have a high salary, but your real estate costs are super high as well. So your final like lifestyle purchases could actually be less in China if you live in Shanghai or something versus mm. if you live in a quote-unquote tier two city like Chengdu or a, you know, where Ying Ying's family's from, like a tier four city. People there might actually have more money to spend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's unintuitive, but it's true, right? Because the income disparity might be a factor of like two, three times, but the real estate prices might be a factor of 10 times, yeah. right? It's very like, like Shanghai, when I, when I left, I, I bought an apartment there and I sold it and it was like already more expensive than most districts in, in San Francisco. <laughs> wow. wow. I, I, this is five years ago. Yeah. Um, so Ray mentioned my family, and I just looked up the population of the fourth tier city that I was born in, and it's fourth tier, but there's 5.77 million people. And and what you were saying <laughs> okay. with disposable income and folks having more to spend discretionary in general, that's true. I, I feel like my aunt, compared to my mom, she will spend hundreds of US dollars on clothing and her salary is probably like, not to out her, but probably like one or 2,000 US dollars a month. So we just don't know. Sometimes my mom's like, where is she getting the money for this? But it's because everything else is so cheap. Or if you're working kind of a government job, you get a ton of benefits, including housing. And also, I want to just ingrain in listeners' minds when we do say rural China, like we've already described, we're not talking rural areas. We're talking cities like the one I just We're talking gave you. five million <laughs> yeah, yeah, person exactly. cities. We're yeah. talking like... These are, yeah, it's not like some field in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> the reason this works in community group buying, like it's not just, oh, people traveling 10 miles to deliver one bag of groceries to the final outlier. It's like they're in neighborhoods that are stacked like more densely than San Francisco. And so you have like the gatekeeper of the neighborhood taking the bulk orders and it's right downstairs before you go out. <laughs> So what do we call like people farming in China? If rural China means five million person cities in dense, farmers, call packed them apartments. farmers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think they're still called farmers. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. Well, I want to transition us to to one other big topic that I think we want to hit in talking through China trends today, and that is electric vehicles. I think this is something that a lot of people have seen in the news, both because of SPACs that are happening, because of new battery technology companies, because of Tesla competitors, because of Tesla, you know, building a, a very large factory in China. Like what the heck is going on with electric vehicles in China? So first of all, it's just like a big priority right now. I think if you look back 10 years ago, China probably didn't care that much about environmental damage or or climate change, at least not at the expense of economic development. But in recent years, you've really seen China take a lead on climate change. And part of it is because, you know, they realize that reliance on oil and just, you know, all the devastation from climate change is actually bad for national security, right? It's destabilizing. So now uh, electric vehicles has become a huge priority in China, and every brand is jumping into it. So in the past month alone, we've seen Huawei announced that they're going to put in the software into EVs. We've seen we've seen Xiaomi announce that they're going to invest $10 billion over the next 10 years into EVs. We've seen DJI, the drone maker, say they're going to participate in EVs. And, you know, the BAT and, you know, companies like 
So Baidu is now effectively basically a autonomous driving company. Actually, if you just look at their, really, if you look, mm-hmm. yeah, basically, like they're that's really the that's really the main story now for that huh. company. My and our on acquired sort of perspective on the BAT and Baidu specifically is like that they've just fallen off the map, and it's just Alibaba and Tencent are the big players in in China now. But I at least haven't known anything about what's actually happened with Baidu. Yeah, basically, like investors, like I talked to, are basically like, "Oh, you're basically investing in Baidu as a autonomous driving company, and you're getting the search business for free." That's, wow, that's what it is. So it's like investing in Waymo and getting Google. <laughs> yeah, for free. exactly, exactly. Right. So it's like if you and and you know again like. When Baidu introduces itself now, I know a, a lot of the PR people there, it's basically, uh, we're an AI company. That's accurate, yeah. Yeah. And they've made, they've made, by the way, a lot of progress in autonomous driving, so no knock on them. But if you look at Alibaba, they also have a bunch of JVs in EV. We don't know what they're exactly what they're doing because they've only announced the JVs, but no specifics. Tencent, of course, has invested in I think they invested in Neo. Alibaba also invested in Xpeng, and then Meituan invested in Li Auto, which are the three publicly listed Chinese EV companies. And then they all made significant money, I guess, at least on paper, on these yeah. investments because they're all up significantly in the last year, <laughs> which is hilarious because when we visited Neo in October 2019, I remember our meeting got canceled at last minute because this was the period when people weren't sure if they were going to be in business. So their yeah. stock price was like hovering around. And, and are they are they making cars? Like are these companies cars on the road? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All of them have all of them have uh, delivered vehicles. Of course, they're a fraction of Tesla, but they've all delivered vehicles. In fact, I think Neo now is a. I want to say yeah, fifty nine billion dollar company. Wow. Yeah, literally a year and a half ago, we weren't sure if they would be survived. Which is what Tesla was two years ago. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Well, it's funny. Is the Tesla sales multiple being applied to all of these companies too? Is that what's happening? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. The the exuberance is has lifted the entire sector. Yeah, and when you consider, of course, that China's you know largest car market and there's government um, push towards EVs, that yeah, there's a lot of excitement. And is it fair to say that the car market in China is probably four to five times as large as the car market in the U.S. just by population? Yeah, I actually don't know. I did an episode on this, but I don't remember the exact numbers. But I do remember it's the largest. Yeah. Huh. Because I have heard this from other sources sort of talking about the growth of electric vehicles. People saying, oh, well, the real growth is in China. Yeah. (laughs) Just from a consumption perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's people betting on the continued development of the economy and the the incredible demand and probably government incentives to be driving an electric car in the next few years. Definitely government incentives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's complicated. It's a complicated story. The government is tamping down incentives, but I think the overall demand is still going to be there. Yeah. And the, but there's a lot of there's a lot of competition, as you can see. Basically, every internet company. We've listed a bunch. I'm just waiting for Pinduoduo now to announce to that they're going to do EVs. some like discount car. <laughs> yeah, uh, EVs are the new games for Chinese companies. No, for sure, for sure, yeah. And then the uh, pretty much everyone's announced one, and then uh, separately in autonomous driving, which I think is also really interesting. But all of these companies are private, so so we don't know as much about them. But have, I've talked to a bunch of people who have invested in this space, and I've talked to a few of the companies. 
I think that this is a space we should definitely be watching because China is going about it in a different way. So Baidu, for example, is working with the government on autonomous driving solutions that aren't just the software, but also include remaking the infrastructure on the road, right? So so we'll see if that works. And then there are just, yeah, a bunch of players that are really like teams actually that came out of Baidu, also Google, just really, really top-notch AI talent. And the word on the ground is that it's anyone's game. Like who's going to get to level five first? It's not clear that it would be the US winning. I think China has a really strong chance. And this is like the first, this is what I would say is like the first sort of deep tech, right? Not like consumer internet, lightweight app, but really deep tech that we see this uh, competition play out that will be, that will have really, really interesting lasting effects, right? The first country to get to level five is going to experience tremendous efficiencies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, the, you know, the infrastructure point is a, an interesting one, too, because, you know, I remember not that I've spent a ton of time in the autonomous space, but, you know, a few years ago, people were thinking, oh, well, if, you know, there's going to be new roads built or roads upgraded in the U.S. that are going to be integrated with AVs and this is going to be great. The reality is like that's not going to happen in the U.S. <laughs> anytime soon. But China could actually yeah. do this. Right. The U.S. is at a huge disadvantage for this, both because of the sort of like uh, reliance on the existing system, whereas China will just make a government mandate and say, nope, we're building an all new system and people will snap too. But also because of the federal system, the, the idea that we're a whole bunch of states that are all going to pass laws independently. I think the ability to require that people stay at home uh, during the coronavirus is a, a very similar example where if something is declared by fiat, uh, it is much more likely to be followed than, uh, you know, please, please, population, do something. <laughs> Very different strategies that, that both have their trade-offs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is not that centralized in China either, but I think there are, yeah, the, the local governments, who I've worked with some of them, uh, definitely have a lot more power, a lot more budget <laughs> than, you know, than here in the States. I can't, I can't imagine some of the cities I've lived in, in the Bay Area, for example, really being able to remake the entire, you know, traffic light system or leg markers or whatever it is that's needed. Yeah. Probably. It's like it's just impossible to even imagine. <laughs> I know, right? It's just like the potholes aren't even filled yet and you're going to make this a smart road? I, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. One one more lightning topic here before we close, because I know it's on a lot of people's minds uh, who, who follow China Tech. What is going on with antitrust in China right now? And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I will say it's definitely affecting asset prices and stock prices. So what's happening there? So I think the antitrust caught some people off guard. But actually, if you look at the history, this was pretty much inevitable. And it's actually been in play for quite a few years, right? So I talked to people who've been working on antitrust in China and at least three or four years in the making. If you look at the history, Chinese antitrust law, the first version was passed in 2008, which is really late, right? Because in the US, it was like in yeah. the 1890s that yeah. there was the first version. The Sherman Act, I think, was Yeah, the yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and then nothing was done for the next 12 years. So specific to tech, we had one case that was Chihu 360 and Tencent. They got into a fight where it was actually very similar to what's happening right now, where they they basically told their users that the other software program was malware and that if you wanted to use 
my program, you had to uninstall the other program, right? Forcibly. <laughs> like, and then um, Tencent actually won that case, but but it actually had ramifications in that it really changed how they thought about their strategy going forward. This is this is actually the time after which they stopped making a lot of products internally and started investing. So this is when they built their empire, uh, so to speak. But uh, after that case, then no cases were heard for like the next 10 years. Wow. So literally zero antitrust cases in China for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, in tech, in tech, there were plenty of antitrust cases, but I mean for internet, for internet. So so let's make that clear. Then in January 2020, in an effort, honestly, to catch up with the rest of the world, right? So if you look at all the state media and the government proclamations, this is all about trying to catch up with the rest of the world. They issued the first draft, and then a lot of the things were very reasonable, uh, and then they issued more, of course, towards the end of last year, uh, specifically around platform companies. But really, you've seen movements towards this direction for a while now. And all of the things are meant to really protect consumers as well as vendors who deal with these platform companies. Because let's face it, some of them, like Alibaba, who recently received the massive $2.8 billion fine, were really abusing their positions yeah, they were telling people that you could only do promotions or sell products on my platform and not JD, right? So <laughs> this is like this is very egregious if you if you yeah. think about it. Yeah, and then um, the the laws also protect consumers against various other things, which is like discriminatory pricing. So a lot of the platforms were discovered by the public to be discriminating against users, and in fact, they were doing it against their most loyal customers, right? Because right. They're going to be happy to pay more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're like, we know you're really sticky and you're very loyal. So we're going to actually charge you more for the same thing than for a new user. So this was, this is obviously really not cool. Oh, so, so really, I think the proper takeaway is that China is really trying to catch up to the rest of the world. And this is something that is going to be in play. This is not something that's going away. China is very adamant about this. It's not going to go back to the days of the wild, wild west, which I agree with. And if you talk to investors on the ground and consumers on the ground, they're all cheering these resolutions. In fact, they're like, why didn't this happen earlier? Right. And why is that? Because again, some of the uh, practices that were that these big tech companies were doing that were really, really unfair to both consumers and vendors. And there was just no recourse because the antitrust authorities weren't really even hearing any cases, right? So all of the judgments also were, well, I shouldn't say the antitrust, they, they were hearing cases, but I would say the judgments were very small. So prior to the draft laws changing this, I think the upper cap for violations was like a million RMB, right? Or 500,000 RMB, it might've been even lower, which is like $70,000. It's like, that's like a, That's go. like a small tax you're going to pay. Yeah, to, exactly. Yeah. Like imagine, right. imagine you're a, you know, $200 Alibaba, billion dollar company. Yeah. This means nothing. So if you're a, a startup investor or a startup founder and play, this is great news for you because, you know, this is going to force, you know, China big tech to play fair. Exactly. So, and that's exactly what's happened. If you talk to VCs on the ground, if you talk to entrepreneurs on the ground, um, one VC actually said something, this is more specific to fintech. He was like, oh yeah, I was previously not interested in consumer fintech at all. But now that all these rules came out, I think I'll start looking at it, right? So. Fascinating. All right. Well. As we close here, let, let's look with an eye toward the future. What should people sort of think about as what's next for China Tech through 2021, 2022? 
So I think it's really hard to sum up what we should be looking at, because as you've heard throughout our entire discussion, there's so much going on in China Tech and so many sectors that are experiencing innovation. And you have like people who used to start internet companies going and making electric cars and raising a bunch of money for that. So that's happening domestically. But I think in my purview, there is a lot of increased internationalization that we kind of thought stopped last year because of COVID. But I actually see signs of it starting up again and accelerating. And this whole trend of Chinese companies not just coming to the US and Europe, but also going to Southeast Asia, to Brazil, to other emerging markets, India, uh, that's, again, been ongoing. And I feel like having honed their chops at home, that's only going to accelerate. Um, and there's certain sectors like e-commerce that are very well positioned for that. And there's companies that have already started to take advantage of those trends. And I think capital kind of in a cycle recognizes that as well. So definitely internationalization. Um, I think from a talent point of view too, founders who have found either success at home or success in a different sector or have had global education. And I know you guys have seen this too with probably all the founders that you're meeting with. They take that knowledge and return home and you know it's like more comfortable mm -hmm. to have a great lifestyle and to be well-funded and well-supported in the China market and from there kind of take on the rest of the world because you're you know how to hire teams in other places so i think that that's going to continue there's definitely continued innovation i think ray you wrote mckenzie's head of china said no china no country we're the main thing yeah so and i think the uh this is more of a meta point because i think we covered the sectors that we think are really interesting to look at for this year the meta point is that i think for chinese companies don't expect them to impose any boundaries on themselves right so for example, we see that ByteDance is now going into local services and trying to move Meituan's cheese, right? We see, of course, like Xiaomi going into EVs, but all these companies are going wherever the opportunity is next because the amount of change that's really happened in the last 30 years in China, uh, GDP went up 30 times in China in the last 30 years, right? That's wow. the highest, like far, far higher than any other country, which makes both the customers in China hyper-adaptive, but also makes the entrepreneurs, they're hyper-adaptive as well. No one really takes anything for granted. They're looking for the next thing all the time. Right. Well, like the story of Meituan is that you know, it started as a Groupon clone and Today, it's, you know, <laughs> the largest travel player and a huge community group buying platform and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Meituan is, Meituan is a perfect example. Like, uh, you know, basically Wang Xing, like, I think it really embodies this, but so does Zhang Yiming at ByteDance, et cetera, right? They're, they've just made a $4 billion acquisition of a gaming studio. And then three weeks later, they made another acquisition, which I think is also billions of dollars. It was undisclosed. But just looking at the company, it's definitely it's definitely up there. Yeah. I mean, if I had to describe this trend, I think it would be U.S. companies think that their core competency is something like e-commerce or ride sharing or social networking. And Chinese entrepreneurs think we have lots of competencies. We have a lot of capital. We have a lot of users. Yes. Let's do whatever. Let's do lots of things with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll do whatever makes money. Our core competency is making money. Yeah. <laughs> Either making money or if we're losing money, then raising money. <laughs> so, so something like that. Yeah. So um, I, I, I definitely, uh, there's this basically, I think, existential 
anxiety that people have because they've seen so much change over the last, you know, during their lifetimes that they can't take anything for granted, Mm -hmm. right? So people don't hold on to their laurels for too long and they're always investing. Yeah. Like, did you guys know, for example, ByteDance has invested big into fintech and even into a hospital, right? Wow. No. Whoa. Yeah. And then, then of course, there are rumors they're making their own EV as well. Like, who knows, right? Everyone, everyone, you get an EV, you get an EV, everyone gets one. (laughs) And it's still a private company. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Ray and Ying, this was super fun. Thank you for doing this with us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. 